we have it figured out there. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. Past summer, uh, Sarah and I on our travels became aware of the importance of our relationship uh, with the Holy Spirit, also called the Holy Ghost back in the day, <coughs> kind of like that. And there, we also became aware that there might be some confusion regarding who the Holy Spirit is and how we are to interact uh, with him. When we returned to South Carolina and I knew I had a sermon coming up where I could pick the topic, this rushed to the forefront, so here we are. I'm not so foolish as to think uh, that the topic of the Holy Spirit is not fraught with confusion and discomfort. And there are topics related to the Holy Spirit that hover there, like speaking in tongues or healings uh, or the miraculous. But that is not what I will be speaking on this morning related to the Holy Spirit. I know that might disappoint some. I could talk about that another time. I'm not afraid to engage with those ideas, but I think those are ideas further down the path of a walk with Jesus than what I want to talk about today or this morning. If you wish to interact about some of those after this morning or later, I'd be happy to share my thoughts, my opinions, what I know and what I don't know regarding the mysteries of the Holy Spirit. Where I want to talk this morning is at a more basic level, not basic like this is simple or doesn't require much thought, but basic as in primary, as to its importance Think of it like you would when you learn anything from a sport to gardening to painting to reading to walking. How you become proficient in those things is to start with a very few important ideas and practices that you then are able to carry further in life and not only learn to garden but become a master gardener. Or not only learn to walk but you then become capable of running and even jumping and even something as intricate as a pole vault. All pole vaulters need to learn to walk first. So that is where I want to speak this morning regarding the Holy Spirit. A good illustration of the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit to a follower of Jesus is similar to stories I had heard about poor landowners and the discovery of wealth on that land. I had heard such stories before and I looked for one but couldn't find it. But I remember the main points of the story because similar ones exist in our current culture. The story goes like this. A poor farmer who owns... A dozen or more acres of land for years struggled and scraped by just to survive, eat and feed, clothe and house his family. All the while, what resided not far under his feet was the purest crude oil. He merely had to dig or drill to release the wealth of that resource and easily feed, clothe and house his family. It reminds me of where my wife is from. She grew up until she was 12 in western Pennsylvania, where in centuries and decades past, Much fruitfulness came from the processing and making and selling of steel until about the mid and late 20th century. When much of the industry died or dried up and left western Pennsylvania, it became an economic desert and lost a lot of population in those days. There were whole small towns in the outskirts of uh, uh, Pittsburgh that that were just empty because of this, just sat empty for decades. 
Then a decade or so ago, a few years after Sarah and I had been married, on a visit up to that region to visit family and supporters of our work, we found out that beneath that land that once produced the needed resources for steel resided the resource, natural gas. And that discovery began to bring back work and purpose and population once again to western Pennsylvania. We remember driving out uh, from that time, and, and Sarah was talking about how the tone of some, or like a cousin she had been talking to, was just had changed from being so depressed in, in western Pennsylvania to actually there was hope now. We have a means of income. I'm not going to comment on your thoughts on fracking and natural gas. All I'm saying is the people of western Pennsylvania appreciated the wealth natural gas brought to them. <laughs> I think in the Christian life it is similar with our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Do we know what lies beneath our feet? Let me try to answer some of that for you. This morning I want to look at three things related to the Holy Spirit. I want to first answer who the Holy Spirit is. Next, I want to answer what does the Holy Spirit do. And lastly, I want to answer how the Holy Spirit interacts with us here and now. So who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And how does the Holy Spirit work with us. So, who is the Holy Spirit? Simply put, He is God, the third person of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this Question How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer There are three persons in the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power. And glory. The larger catechism adds some to the answer, as it should, or it would not be even larger catechism. The answer there is there are three persons in the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are true, etern- one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. So, I wouldn't. I know that the. Uh, I think this, I say this later on. I know that. Well, let me go. Keep further. Sorry, I possibly wanted to go off there. Let me get back here. The earliest mention of the Spirit of God is in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis one verse two, where it says, "The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep." And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The root word in Hebrew here is ruach, meaning wind, for the English word spirit. And this word is used in many places in the Old Testament for spirit. This makes me understand uh, Jesus' words in John 3 when he said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Even Jesus describes the Spirit as wind. This word, capital S, Spirit, is then used, whether in in the phrase Spirit of the Lord or Spirit of God or Spirit, over 60 times in the Old Testament. And, of course, the Spirit is referenced multiple times in the New Testament. I already referenced Jesus' words in John 3, but the clear image of the Spirit in the context of being with the other two persons of the Trinity is at Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 3, 13 through 17, it says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus, on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we have here Jesus the Son emerging from water, then the heavens open up, and the Spirit in the shape of a dove comes down. Meanwhile, a voice from that opened heaven speaks. It seems... Like the Trinity is represented there. God, the Son, emerging from the waters. The Spirit coming down from a heaven that opened and a voice from the opened heaven. So the Spirit is God. Now, even as I have spoken of the Spirit that He is God, I've introduced what to some is a controversial subject, that of the Trinity. The word Trinity is not used uh, in the Bible, Old and New Testament. I'm not going to go into the details of the controversy surrounding the Trinity. Remember, this is more basic. I'm going to do this for several reasons. One is there are not, there's not enough time, and I wonder sometimes if we use the difficult things to divide us rather than unite us humbly before the mysterious aspects of the truth. Uh, just a quick way of perhaps remembering or thinking about the Trinity is if you draw a tr- two triangles next to each other, say, on a piece of paper. And on one, you put the uh, in the center of the triangle the word God. And then at each of the points of the triangle, you put Father at the top, Son, and Spirit. So you have God in the middle, Father, Son, and Spirit are in the triangle. On the other triangle, you put in the center of the triangle what, and then who at three corners. So what are we talking about? We're talking about God. Who are we talking about? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. It's a quick way of remembering it. We're talking about a what and a who. He is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, who is the Spirit? Well, in John 16, reading, uh, in the the John 16 reading, there are several things mentioned here by Jesus. Uh, He is being sent by Jesus. Verse 7 says this. In fact, just two verses earlier, Jesus says he's going back to the one who sent him. Who we know is the Father, as he says in other places. Remember, he said in other places, the Father has sent me. And then here he referenced, as I'm, been, I'm going back to the one who sent me. Well, who's the one that sent me? The Father sent me. So I'm going back. So as he's, Jesus is saying this to his disciples, uh, so the Father sent the Son, and the Son upon leaving sends the Holy Spirit. So in these three short verses, we again see the threeness of God in Father sending Son, who sends Spirit. That's a, a good way of... Trinity has come to be a, like a title. If we think about it more like we're talking about the threeness of God. That's basically what Trinity means. We're talking about the threeness of God. The three persons of God. So Spirit is God. In the New City Catechism, which we use, it asks in question 36, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? The answer, that he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that he grant, and that God grants him irrevocably, irrevocably to all who believe. So that is who the Spirit is. Remember, Jesus said, it's good that I go so I can send the Holy Spirit. That's kind of... Interesting and also slightly disconcerting. Anyway, what does the Holy Spirit do? From the John 16 and Acts 1 passages, there are at least four things the Spirit 
will do. Convict, guide, glorify, and empower. There are other things here, but these are the ones that are most apparent. Convict, God, guide, glorify, and empower. Convict, in John 16, verse 8, it says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus says here that the Spirit will bring a clarity. The word used is convict, which means expose or reprove. We also get the word convince from this concept. Also notice that this convicting, this conviction is directed at the world. Convict the world. There are three things the Spirit's conviction will bring. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. It will bring clarity to these things. Now, I won't go into huge detail about these three uh, things except to say this. The, The Spirit will convict of sin... Our own brokenness and need, our twistedness and dark and evil hearts. The Spirit will convict of righteousness. After showing our brokenness, He will show that there is a, a right path, who we know to be, uh, which we know to be in Christ. So, convict us of our sin, our own darkness. Convict us and show us what the right path is in Christ. That's righteousness. And then the Spirit will convict of judgment. In this case, he uses the ruler of this world, which is interesting. The ultimate uh, enemy ruler of the world is already judged and will be judged or convict of judgment. He will show, the Spirit will show, that a day is coming when things will be made right. The enemy has already been judged. It will be made right. The darkness will be removed forever and all sin destroyed. Isn't that interesting? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Kind of gives us a good path, doesn't it? So that means the Spirit convicts. The Spirit also uh, guides. In verse 13 it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. This is kind of related to the first thing the Spirit does, in that the way... Conviction comes as a realization of the truth. Notice that the Spirit will guide us. He convicts the world and guides us. The Spirit will lay out out the paths before us, directing us to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. How else will we know if we are sinful, that there there is a righteous path and that judgment is coming if we were not guided to the truth? Convict, guide, in verse 14, he glorifies. Jesus says, He will glorify the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice he will glorify Christ. He convicts the world, guides us, and glorifies Christ. And as Jesus says, he will declare. But what exactly does Jesus mean that the Spirit will take and declare? Let me give you a a few examples. John 6. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. The Spirit will declare things like that. John 8. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The Spirit will declare and glorify Christ in that. John 10. I am the good shepherd. These are things the Spirit declares. Glorify means to admire, to praise, to magnify. The Spirit will glorify Jesus by guiding us into all truth to convict the world. You see the three there? The Spirit will glorify Christ by guiding into all truth, guiding us into all truth to convict the world. 
So convict, guide, and glorify, and in Acts 1.8, to empower. In Acts 1.8, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I try to quote this verse every time I'm up here to speak because I'm trusting and asking the Lord for exactly this, His power. The Greek word used here for power is probably familiar to you. It is the word dunamis. We get a very familiar English word from it. Do you guys know what it is? Dynamite. You will receive dynamite when the Spirit comes upon you. What? Imagine that. We will receive the power of dynamite when the Spirit comes upon us. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be physically blown up into tiny bits in this case. That's not what this means. But imagine a spiritual equivalent to a physical explosion. And that may get us on the right path of what Jesus is referring to. I can't imagine. What would be a spiritual equivalent to dynamite going off? The spiritual is also in the physical world. Maybe it would be something like the blind being healed, the lame walking and jumping for joy, the dead being raised. What? When the Spirit works through us, it is as powerful as setting off dynamite or physical explosives. So let me summarize this point and then ask a question. The Spirit convicts, guides, glorifies, empowers and when He comes. He is being sent by Jesus. So I ask you, where is He being sent? John 6, 7 says it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him. He is being sent because Jesus is going away. He is being sent so Jesus can fulfill his promise in Matthew 28 when he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is he, Jesus, in one spot in Jerusalem in the first century, I am with you, and he's saying that to us. How can that possibly be? Well, it's good that he goes, because then he can send the Spirit to us. And then, I am with you. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. He is being sent because Jesus is going away. How else is Jesus going to be with us except by his Spirit the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is being sent to us as the Acts 2 passage bears out. That's why I have that one in there. To show that Jesus' word is fulfilled. I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And he arrives on Acts uh, Acts 2. He also arrives in other ways throughout Acts. And there's an interesting way of thinking about it um, as far as how that happens. Because when I became a Christian, there was not a tongue of fire that came over my head. And that's because... As one thing was going out, something else was coming in as far as how the Spirit was uh, given to us. So if the Spirit is doing all these things, convict, guide, glorify, and empower, and the Spirit is sent to us and is in us, then what the Spirit does will be done through us as people. Do you understand that? The Spirit is being sent to us. He is now in us, individually and as a group, And if he's doing all these things, then he is choosing to do those things through us. Convict, guide, glorify, empower. The Spirit will convict the world through us. 
The Spirit will guide through us. The Spirit will glorify Christ through us. The Spirit will empower us. Now, this is astounding. Does he need us to do this? Of course not. He's God. He doesn't need us to do those four things. He could do it without us. But he has chosen to do that with us. He has chosen to be with us by his Spirit, and it is through his Spirit that he does this amazing list of things. This is why Paul would talk about keeping in step with the Spirit, or walk in the Spirit. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 5, and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If this fruit is produced in us, in our community, the world will be convicted... We will be guided and Christ will be glorified as we are empowered to continue furthering his kingdom. This is in us, not because of us, but because of Christ and his gracious gift and his gracious presence. It is astounding that the presence of Christ by his spirit is similar to God coming down into the temple and residing on his throne in the Holy of Holies. The priest did one thing out of line. He would die if he had entered that room. And they would have to drag him out by a cord. That is now in us. That's why the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. This is the power beneath our feet. As we live our impoverished lives on land with hidden great wealth. Do you believe this? Do you know this? It's easy to forget. I do. I forget this constantly. In fact, going over this, I'm like, ah, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time and I forget this. So how does he work in us? And this is our last point. My last point. So how does it work? Now to ask how it works is a little crass. As this is not some mechanism I'm talking about here. It's not like pumping gas at the gas station where we slide our card into the slot, wait for it to say, select a grade. And then we push the button that says, I want to convict the world. That's not what this is. This is a relationship. This is not choosing a gas grade or a piece of candy from a machine. This is like going to a friend and asking for a favor. Only this friend is like the best friend you've ever had in your life, and better. (laughs) And he's richer than Elon Musk and Bill Gates and all the millionaires on earth put together. He has more authority than all the governments on earth put together. He has more power than all the nuclear weapons on earth put together. Imagine that. He is richer than anything, the ultimate adding up of riches on this earth. Think of the biggest number that we have right now. Billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. He's richer than that. Think of all the governments, good and bad, tyrannical to (coughs) democratic. Put all that authority together. God has more authority. That is our friend that has empowered us. Think of all the nuclear weapons whether made in the past or being currently made for untoward reasons. God has more power than that. 
That is our friend. That is this relationship. And he's not busy. He always has time for you. He will always make time for you. This is a relationship. Now, how do we exercise our understanding of this relationship? How does it work? There are two things that address this. One is the con- a concept to understand or an idea to understand. And the other is an exercise to practice. The idea or concept to understand is the difference between being filled and being indwelt. At the moment a person becomes a true follower of Christ, places their faith in his life, death, and resurrection, that person has someone take up residence in him or her. That person is the Holy Spirit. This is called being indwelt with the Spirit. The Spirit comes to live in you and through you. Paul writes about this several times in the epistles. 2 Corinthians 1, 1 and 22, he says, And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us giving, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13, 13 and 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possessions of of it to the praise of his glory, Jesus' glory. There's the glory. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by God, uh, Holy Spirit of God by, by whom you were sealed for the day of, resent, of redemption. Romans 8.9-11 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. To illustrate this concept, I've asked uh, my beautiful wife to assist me as she comes forward. I heard tales about Francis... St. Francis of Assisi would like to use illustrations when he would go and preach. I heard one of them was he would take uh, somebody who would have money to talk about greed in their mouth and then spit it out into cow dung as an illustration of what greed does. Ooh, yeah, you can imagine. So here Sarah has a glass, some milk, and some chocolate syrup. <laughs> The glass and the milk represent an unbeliever, someone who hasn't trusted Christ. Again, pour that. So this represents just a regular old person. In reform circles, we call them unregenerate, unbelievers, unsaved, whatever you want to call it. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, believes Jesus is God and risen from the dead, the Spirit represented by the chocolate, goes into the person or indwells them. So, this is like the Spirit enters that person. Ooh, don't go all the way. Careful. That's a lot of Spirit. All right. So now the chocolate syrup is in the milk. But let me ask you, does it fill the milk? No, it's in, dwelt, the milk, but it's not filling the milk. There is a difference between indwelling and filling. 
In Ephesians, Paul wrote this in chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. God, through Paul, has told us to be filled with himself. Be filled. It is his desire, God's desire, that we be filled with him. It is how we produce the fruit of the Spirit. It is how we walk and keep in step with the Spirit, which are other concepts Paul wrote about. It is God's will that we be filled. But how does that happen? How about we ask him? When needed, ask him to fill us. <laughs> Even if we're not sure. We could very well be filled, but I don't think it hurts to ask again. In 1 John five fourteen and 15, it says this. This is part of the reading. And this is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to God's will, God will hear us. And if we know that God hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of God. So what John is saying here, that anything we pray to God and ask him for, that is in fact God's will. We know that we have that for which we asked. So if we know it's God's will and we ask it, then John, John said, then we know we have that because it's his will that we have that. So do I know if it's God's will for me to be given half a million dollars? No, I don't know. I don't know if that's God's will. So I mean, I could ask him, but I don't know if I'll get that. Because I don't know if it's God's will. I wish it were God's will. Do we know if it's God's will for him to grow Fred's hair back? I know he'd hope it. And we we don't know. We pray that he does. I'm sure Fred would love to have a full head of hair again. But we don't know. Right? So we don't know if that's... Okay, you get it? Do we know if it's God's will that we be filled with his spirit? Yes. We know that. Why? We have been told. We have been shown over and over again. Be filled. <laughs> Paul saying, if you're in Christ, you're filled. Or you're, you're indwelled and filled with the Spirit. How do we know we are? We trust God's Word. That's what faith is. Taking God at His Word. After we ask, we trust that He has commanded and promised that we will be filled and we will live that way. And so back to the milk here. When a believer is indwelt... The Spirit comes in to live in them. When a believer then asks to be filled, it's like stirring the milk up to make it chocolate milk. This may take a bit to fill the Spirit. We'll get there. We might have to do more later to make it more chocolatey. Now, so we ask, does, is now the milk filled with the chocolate? Yes. It both indwells and fills. Thank you, dear. You can still. Thank you. You can leave it there. Just leave it there. All right, now, if we were to wait long enough and not stir up the milk, what would happen to the chocolate? Right? If we waited long, it would have to probably take a long time because they put things in there to keep it floaty. Right? It would go to the bottom again, right? And we'd see the divide between the chocolate and the syrup. Sin acts in this manner in our relationship. We're indwelt. It causes us to be need to be filled again. We always we will always remain indwelt, but not always filled. So what do we do when that happens? 
we ask. This is the concept to understand. Now for the exercise to practice. Will you hand out the uh, satisfied booklets? Sarah's going to be handing out booklets. I encourage each one of you to take one of these called Satisfied. It's a good summary of some of the concepts I'm talking about this morning. When you get it, turn to page 9. The exercise of practice is called spiritual breathing. Turn to page 9. Now, this is not a magical spell. This is, not, <coughs> this is nowhere in the scriptures saying do this spiritual breathing. And it's not a guaranteed solution. As it says in the booklet, it is merely a word picture to illustrate a spiritual concept. When I was in, uh, on staff in Massachusetts, I had a roommate that exercised something similar. He, when he would get up in the mornings, as he was preparing to get ready for his day and go to work, as he went through each of his things, he prayed, he used each of the things that he did to pray the armor of God upon himself. So when he put on his shirt, he would do what? Pray for the breastplate, right? Put on his pants, he'd pray for the girding of his lawn. You know, so if you go through the, in Ephesians, the armor of God... So he would use the exercise of getting ready for the morning as putting on the armor of God. When he washed his hair, he would talk about putting on the helmet. All right? Okay. So it's similar. This is a Spiritual breathing is similar. It's not anything magical. It's just an exercise to remind us of how to walk in the Spirit. If you sin, perhaps, uh, or perhaps come upon a moment where you feel a need to reconnect with God, then spiritually breathe. How do you do that? Well, exhale. You breathe out. And by that, it's kind of like confessing. You see, you know, confess this to God. If you have any known sin or become aware of it, breathe it out. I confess this to you, Father. Then you inhale. Inhale is like asking God to fill you again. And how do we know he's going to fill us? Well, he's commanded us to be filled. And he's promised that if we ask anything according to his will, that we would be filled. Now, remember, your sins are already forgiven because of Christ. Remember, we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. All three of those things are true. We have been saved. So our sins are forgiven. This is to restore the relationship, or this is to go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. This exercise reveals to us that the relationship, uh, about, the relationship, uh, about the relationship until he returns, that it is an ongoing one until Jesus comes back. When you spiritually breathe, go forward, trusting that God is filling you and will guide you as Jesus promised that his spirit would do. Trust and faith is taking God at his word. If we ask this, we need to go forward and trust him that he's filled us. The spirit is the rich resource laying, laying beneath our feet. We merely need to avail ourselves of his power and he will convict the world guide and glorify Christ and empower us to work through us. I thought I would close with a poem or I think it might be even a hymn written by an English poet named John Dryden who lived in the 18th century dying in 1700. The poem is called Veni Creator Spiritus which means come creator spirit. 
Dryden was probably influenced by Gregorian chants and prayers titled the same and having similar content. There is a word in here that is used as a descriptive title for the spirit. It is the word paraclete, which means an advocate or one called to aid or support. That's what it literally means, one called in to help. Capital P paraclete, if you see that, that usually refers to the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Jesus was saying. I'm sending a paraclete. He probably used, obviously used the Hebrew, an Aramaic word, but he used probably something similar to that. So, Veni Creator Spiritus by John Dryden. Creator Spirit, by whose aid the world's foundations first were laid, come visit every pious mind, come pour thy joys on humankind. From sin and sorrow, set us free, and make thy temples worthy thee. O source of uncreated light, the Father's promised paraclete, thrice thrice holy font, thrice holy fire, our hearts with heavenly love inspire. Come, and thy sacred unction bring to sanctify us while we sing. Plenteous of grace, descend from high, rich in thy sevenfold energy, Thou strength of his almighty hand, whose power does heaven and earth command. Proceeding spirit, our defense, who dost the gift of tongues dispense, and crowns thy gift with eloquence. Refine and purge our earthly parts, but, oh, inflame and fire our hearts. Our frailties help, our vice control, submit the senses to the soul. And when rebellious they are grown, then lay thy hand and hold them down. Chase from our minds the infernal foe, and peace the fruit of love bestow. And lest our feet should step astray, protect and guide us in the way. Make us eternal truths receive, and practice all that we believe. Give us thyself that we may see the Father and the Son by thee. Immortal honor, endless fame, Attend thy, multi, thy multi, uh, almighty Father's name. The Savior Son be glorified, who for lost man's redemption died. And equal adoration be, eternal paraclete to thee. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Though I hate to say this in some ways, for going away. Because your going meant you were sending and that you were sending your spirit to be with us. That your spirit is now with us to reveal to us the wealth of power. And this is not a power of man at all. We know that. It is a power few of us probably have any understanding of. But it's ours and you do it through us. You live it through us. And we ask, I ask on behalf of myself and my brothers and sisters here to help us to depend upon you, to have trust and faith in you, to ask you to fill us as you are with us, so that we may, may keep in step, as your servant Paul said, with the Spirit, that we may walk, as your servant Paul told us, walk in the Spirit. This is not some 
candy-covered hope that I have, Lord. This is actually what is true from your word and what you've said to us. And I thank you for that on my and my brothers and sisters' behalf. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.